Welcome to the Cutting the Gordian Knot podcast. Today is a bonus episode covering the Lord's Prayer. We've been going through many, 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 many paragraphs of Rerum Navarum, and I figured I would break that up a bit with this. You should all be praying the Lord's Prayer after all. The Lord did it. So we're going to begin by uh, reading from St. Augustine and some of his commentary on the Lord's Prayer. Then we're going to be going right to the text of it, both in English and in Latin, and giving a little bit of our commentary along the way. Here's what the good doctor writes. Not Doctor Who, um, St. Thomas Aquinas. The Lord's Prayer is most perfect because, as St. Augustine says, if we pray rightly and fittingly, we can say nothing else but what is contained in this prayer of our Lord. For since prayer interprets our desires, as it were, before God, then alone is it right to ask for something in our prayers when it is right that we should desire it. Prayer is offered up to God, not that we may bend him, but that we may incite in ourselves the confidence to ask, which confidence is excited in us chiefly by the consideration of his charity in our regard, whereby he wills our good, wherefore we say, Our Father, and of his excellence whereby he is able to fulfill it, wherefore we say, Who art in heaven. Now in the Lord's Prayer, not only do we ask for them, that we may rightly desire, but also in the order wherein we ought to desire them, so that this prayer not only teaches us to act, but also directs our affections. Thus, it is evident that the first thing to be the object of our desire is the end, and afterwards, whatever is directed to the end. Now, our end is God, towards whom our affections tend in two ways. First, by our willing the glory of God. Second, by willing to enjoy his glory. The first belongs to love, whereby we love God in himself, while the second belongs to the love whereby we love ourselves in God. Wherefore, the first petition is expressed thus, hallowed be thy name. And the second thus, thy kingdom come, by which we ask to come to glory of his kingdom. To this same end, a thing directs us in two ways, in one way by its very nature, in the other way accidentally. Of its very nature, the good which is useful for an end directs us to that end. Now, a thing is useful in two ways to the end which is beatitude, in one way directly and principally according to the merit whereby we merit beatitude by obeying God, and in this respect we ask Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. In another way, instrumentally, and as it were, helping us to merit. And in this respect, we say, give us this day our daily bread. Whether we understand this of the sacramental bread, the daily use of which is profitable to man, and in which all the other sacraments are contained, or of the bread of the body, so that it denotes all sufficiency of food. As Augustine says, since the Eucharist is the chief sacrament and the bread is the chief food, thus in the Gospel of Matthew we read supersubstantial, i.e. principle, as Jerome expounds it. We are directed to beatitude accidentally by the removal of obstacles. Now, there are three obstacles to the obtainment of beatitude. First, there is sin, which directly excludes a man 
from the kingdom. According to 1 Corinthians 6, 9-10, neither fornicators nor idolaters, etc. shall possess the kingdom of God. And to this refer the words, forgive us our trespasses. Secondly, there is temptation which hinders us from keeping God's will. And to this we refer when we say, and lead us not into temptation, whereby we do not ask not to be tempted, but not to be conquered by temptation which is to be led into temptation. Third, there is the present penal state, which is a kind of obstacle to a sufficiency of life. And to this we refer in the words, deliver us from evil. Okay, well, a lot there for sure. Uh, A few things that popped out to me were, um, he just kind of drops that in the Eucharist is contained all of the other sacraments. I don't think that's often mentioned, but I think that's interesting. And he talks about the super substantial or principal bread, which is talked about. So daily can also be rendered super substantial. Um, I don't know the whole history of how it became daily, but um, well, it did. Um, So here we go with uh, Augustine saying that uh, uh, this bread is principal because bread for them is the principal food. And the principal means of the of grace is through that sacrament, which is the chiefest of sacraments. So it's a stand-in. This daily bread is a, a stand-in for that principal sustenance which God gives us always, spiritually and physically. Okie dokie. So let's read it in English or Latin first. Let's, uh, well, let's read it in English so it's kind of loaded in our brain. Then we'll roll through it slowly in Latin, and you can laugh at how I pronounce Latin words. And then we'll break it down a little bit further. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. And in Latin, it's Pater Nostra, quies in chalos, sanctificer nomen tom, renum tom, fiat valutas tu, sicut in caleo et in terra, panem nostrum quotidinum de nubis hodia, et dimit nobis debita nostra, sicut in nos dimitorius Demitius debitoribus nostros et nenus inductas in tentationem, sed libra nos amalo. Amen. So, I'm not sure which one you guys pray at your church. Um, anyone will do, I suppose. But I think there's a few things in, uh, in Latin which stand out here. And that is, although we read trespasses, um, we actually get debita in the Latin. So, debt seems to be the way that it was originally rendered uh, by Jerome, who was referenced by good old St. Thomas Aquinas earlier. So, why debts versus trespasses? Um, Or sins, for that matter. Um, I bet you you've seen all of those versions. And if you come from the Protestant tradition, you get tripped up on the word trespasses all the time. Um, I am not opposed to any of those. I think each one of those has something to, uh, something to tell us. So one is debts. People do rack up debts and we hold those debts. And as I've talked about in other episodes, we're called to cancel those. So I've given a brief commentary on parts of the Beatitude where 
we're told that the poor in spirit, um, what is it, I guess, get the kingdom of heaven, something like that. And how I see that, maybe right, it might not be. Um, how I see that is to be poor in spirit means to not have any, um, any credits uh, to your account, if you will. Um, which if you, uh, if you listen to some previous episodes which we covered double-entry bookkeeping, you'll know that that is a debita, a debit on the other side. So if you have many loans which you own, then you're rich. And that loan means that somebody else has a debt. And I think that we're called to cancel those. For instance, in the story of the servant who is forgiven of a great debt, um, that servant on the road finds somebody who owes him and he starts to strangle him and says, pay me what you owe. That's a wicked servant and all of his debt actually comes back and in full force. And that would imply getting back the eternal debt of sin, which lands you in hell. So the way to enter the kingdom of heaven, to get that kingdom of heaven that the Beatitudes tell us about is to give up the debts. It's to become spiritually poor. It's to cancel out our whole record book of wrongs that are done against us, and by justice, ought to be paid back. And I've suggested that in hell, maybe a temptation for people to come to hell is a temptation to get to extract the debts which were never extracted. It's to get what's owed to you. But in love... We cancel debts. We don't think that in heaven there's any injustice done. We think there's mercy. Mercy is not the opposite of justice. Mercy is when justice is fulfilled out of, out of love. And often it means that somebody else pays the debt. So in this case, you've given up your ability to extract out of others. So in that sense, I like debt. And uh, that's what we see in the Latin here. It implies that other people owe things against us and that we ought to become spiritually poor and thus inherit the kingdom of God by giving up our, uh, our ability to collect from others. And uh, so, uh, so by our mercy, um, relieve others and, uh, and actually make ourselves wealthier because there's no debt we could collect that would equal the gift of heaven. But what about sin? All right, so we have forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. I think that one's good too because it's so practical. We all understand that we have sinned, or at least we should. And that makes us, in a sense, on par to others. So easy to excuse ourselves for our own faults. It's much more difficult to excuse others. But here, when we render this sin... We see, forgive us our sins, so we forgive those who sin against us. We are in the same boat. There is no, none, no one who is righteous, no, not one. Each one of us has sin. Each one of us is a sinner. The wages of sin is death. So we are dead men walking, each one of us, without the grace of the sacraments, that is. So we ought to see ourselves in a type of uh, solidarity, with even the worst among us. Not that sins are equal. They're clearly not. If you've ever read the Old Testament and the different laws and penalties, you'll know sin's not, not equal. If you've read the letter of John, you know that there are mortal and venial sins. But what is true is that we are all sinners, and that ought to give us an amount of compassion for others who sin and move us to mercy.
Finally, there's trespasses, and that's the one that we read in our English translation. Forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. I've really warmed up to this one because, as I've mentioned before, I'm a landlord, or as I like to describe it, a slumlord, um, because that shocks people. Um, So I know exactly what it's like to own a property to have somebody live there and then decide not to pay or just to uh, abandon the property and leave it a mess, right? They put this thing on you. They've used something of yours with no regard, with no respect, with no reciprocal payment. I don't think most people understand how angry that can uh, that can make you. Imagine you have something which is as expensive as a house and you find out, say, oh, even a couple weeks ago that one of your best renters, one that you trusted, uh, stopped paying rent, trashed the house and left it. And you had to pay uh, people to, to clean it and repair it. And you have to go down even this week to make some uh, substantial repairs um, because of this renter. There's a temptation to anger. There's a temptation to rage. But you know what? That doesn't help you. It doesn't help anyone. And God lets us live on his very good earth. And we don't deserve it. He lets us live on the earth that he created out of love for us. And we've trashed it. I'm not just talking about environmentally, though. I mean, I suppose. But we've trashed it. By, by mistreating the other, other people here on earth, by not, um, by not going forth, uh, multiplying, filling the earth, subduing it, doing the work that he asked us to do. We've trashed his creation by corrupting it with sin and vice. Um, and we can never pay him back. We can never pay the rent on this earth on the, or even the bodies that he's given us that we ourselves did not fashion. So to be angry at people who have used things which are ours or have um, broken contracts with us, that's to be that servant that we talked about earlier. That servant who goes and chases down and chokes that person and says, pay me what you owe. We're meant to understand that it's not just us landlords who have people who uh, trespass against us, um, but we've trespassed against God. And for that reason, we're, um, we're all in the same boat. And if we wish to be shown mercy, we must show mercy to others. So if you're in a situation where people have trespassed against you, well, if you want to start undoing the uh, destruction that we've done to God's very good creation, then you could start in your own backyard. You can start by doing what Christ did, and that is forgiving. Well, we kind of got ahead of ourselves and we got to trespasses. Let's start at the beginning. It's a good place to start, I suppose. Pater Nostra. Our Father. Now, much has been made that the uh, the original language says um, something like uh, Daddy, though I'm not entirely sure if that's true. Some scholarship has shown that it's that word is used more universally than that, but I think that's beside the point. I think what our Father really means is that we're utterly dependent on God for our own generation, that we have a common Father um, in one sense, in the natural sense, that God has brought all things into being from nothing. So us and uh, every star in the heaven 
has one father, one source, one cause. But then there's a more profound sense that because God became became man, that we're joined into the body of Christ, well, we can say our father, not just in the way that the uh, uh, a plant or an animal, if it could think and uh, such thoughts, could call it their father. But we can say our father, like the second person of the Trinity, says my father to the father. So because we share in Christ's divine sonship, we get to share the same father that begat the logos from the beginning. So our father, who art in heaven. Why do we bring up that he's in heaven? What does heaven mean? Well, heaven is, put simply, the dwelling place of God. Our Father, the one who brings all things into existence, who has sent his Son to join us into the second person of the Trinity so that we can be united in the Trinitarian community. Our Father who art in heaven. We understand that the place of our Father is the place where God pulls us into union, where he makes himself present. So we hope for heaven at the uh, the end of our lives, but in a sense, we can always hope for heaven and indeed have it when we come close to the places which God unites himself to creation. Now, that's chiefly the sacraments. And the fathers have talked about the Eucharist as being a, a taste of heaven, a participation in that which is to come. Hallowed be thy name. So here's the response that we have. So we recognize who the Father is. We recognize how he comes to us and how he's generated all things. And our response ought to be to say, holy is his name. Why do we know his name? Certainly many people have not. The Christians, the Jews before us, they knew the name of God, but Many times and many places in human history, the light of natural reason has led people to recognize a father, a cause of all. Look back to Plato and and, uh, Aristotle. They recognize this first cause, the father, but they don't have a name. When Paul meets the the Greeks, he says, well, you, you worship the unknown God, the one that doesn't have a name. But I come to tell you about this God, the one in whom we live and move and have our being. Paul pulls the words of the Greek prophets into Scripture, elevating that which was found by the light of natural reason to the place of sacred Scripture. Now, that didn't name the God, but it named what the God was not. This type of apophatic philosophy can kind of tell us Well, there can't be many causes, therefore there must be one. The cause cannot be finite, therefore it must be infinite. And that's how we shape out where God kind of must be philosophically. But to get much further than simple apophaticism, we have to have divine revelation. So, although it's the light of natural reason that can give us that rough sketch, it is only the the holy light of God himself through divine revelation, a revelation of self that can tell us his name. And the name is, well, 
absolutely in accord with what we find in reason. He tells us in Exodus, who am I? I am that I am. My essence is my existence. Who I am is that I am. It's in accord with reason. But it's also set in a way that relates him in love to us. I am the God of Abraham and Isaac and of Jacob. So he wants to take on a name that relates him to us. Why? Because we're image bearers. We already relate to him as our father. Thy kingdom come. Thy kingdom come. Now, I believe it was, was it St. Augustine or St. Thomas Aquinas who says, how can we pray always? Well, his answer is that um, we can always set our intentions towards the kingdom of God. Because as a catechism says, to pray is to lift the heart and mind to God. So we can do that with words. Yes, and we ought to, and we're taught to do that. But we can also do this by setting our actions towards building up the kingdom to raise our hearts and minds to God through what we do, through the work of our hands. So thy kingdom come. We pray this and we pray this with our whole self. We pray this in our family as we, uh, as, as we engage in the vocation of marriage, uh, raising children. We pray this in our pursuits in business when we, when we act as co-creators with God, making things which are loved and valuable to our neighbors. We pray this in serving the poor, when we exercise the quintessentially kingly role of caring for God's people. Thy kingdom come. So this is a prayer which incites action. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Now, we catch Jesus praying precious few times in the gospel. This, of course, is one of them. And he teaches us to pray, given this form. But another time is at the Garden of Gethsemane, where he says, not my will, Lord, but yours be done. What does that mean? Well, the church has said that Christ has not one will, as if God was just a chess piece being pushed, or Christ in his human nature was just a chess piece being pushed around a board, or just a puppet just uh, here on earth moved by the second person of the Trinity. No, Jesus had a full 100% human nature, and that includes having a full 100% human will. But what the church also teaches is that this will was an absolute cooperation with God. So what does it mean when it when Jesus says not your not my will but yours? Does it mean that his will was somehow in discord with God's? Oh no. Again, he is God. The hypostatic union means he's fully fused with human nature, one person, human and divine, two wills, God's and man's. But because the grace of God most properly is the presence of God, and the presence of God is fully in Jesus as a person. That means that his human will is supernaturally fortified as to always choose the good and choose it freely. But in its nature as being human and fully human, part of being human is to be finite and to be reliant on the grace of God, the very presence of God with us to strengthen and uphold us. So when Jesus prayed that in the Garden of Gethsemane, it's not because his will was in discord with his salvific mission, but instead 
because his will and the power of his will, um, his sense it wasn't big enough. It wasn't extensive enough in its human nature. That's why it, it continued in faith to follow along, perfectly match the divine will of the Son and, of course, of the Father. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So it's not just Jesus Christ who has this mirroring on earth and heaven of a will which is earthly relating to uh, mankind and heavenly relating to the Trinity, but we are called to do this also, not just in imitation of Christ, but by baptism inside of the body of Christ. Here on earth, we're meant to mirror heaven. Why? As we learned earlier, our Father who art in heaven. It's not that God is placed in heaven, but that heaven is placed around God. Heaven is where God is. So we're meant to mirror on earth the presence of God through mirroring our will with his, uniting the two. That is the center of prayer and for good reason is physically the center of prayer um, amongst these petitions. Give us this day our daily bread. Thomas Aquinas helped us with this one. Daily, super substantial, uh, this fundamental bread. Of course, this is an act of dependence of faith. Um, it shows a humility not to ask further than, than just one day. Um, the Gospels say, um, sufficient unto each day is the trouble therein, that we don't need to look to the day ahead and worry. Because if our Father clothes the grass of the fields, the birds of the air he gives food, how much more will he care for us? So this is a fulfillment of that teaching that we ought to have a type of faith, a dependence on God, to not borrow trouble, to not pull the worries of tomorrow into today, but instead know that the most fundamental fact the most fundamental thing that we can lay hold of is God's grace given to us, not something that we can extract for ourselves, but given to us each day. Super substantial or um, fundamental, this daily bread. Um, as we read from Aquinas, it can also relate to a body. I would suggest that what we're given every single day, which um, is super substantial, is most fundamental, is existence. Something that doesn't come from us, that doesn't come from any finite thing, but it only comes from our infinite God. And existence is the precondition for us to have any other goods. So in a sense, it's the one that we should ask for with the most humility. Give us this day our daily bread. We can understand that as Give us that which is the precondition for the other good things. Because we don't need to ask for, for things over abundantly or to flatten out things which could be obstacles in the future. God knows of these things and he likes to give good gifts to his children. But we ought to um, humbly look to the things which God gives us and pray in accord with his will that we continue in his purpose. And forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. Now we talked about this one, but we didn't talk about it enough as a warning. 
Because certainly this could be read in the opposite way. Forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. So, although this can be a great blessing for those who do indeed forgive, this is a curse for those who do not. You'd be praying that God retains your sins if you retain the sins of others. And lead us not into temptation. Now, recently we heard the changing of the Lord's Prayer. I believe it happened in France, where they changed the language a bit here. And I don't have the French translation. Um, I'm sorry, guys. But the way it sounded was that God leads us into temptation. But of course, that's not true. God doesn't lead us into temptation. All temptation is due to either our own broken desires or because of Satan and his minions. God does not tempt anybody. That's what scripture says. So what does it mean, lead us not into temptation? God never would. What it means instead is, don't let temptation overcome us. Don't let us be in a place where we will be tempted and we will fall. This is one because it's a prayer for supernatural grace, for a strengthening of that will, just like Christ had. But also, don't lead us in temptation um, when we understand it as don't lead us into temptation that will cause us to fall, it's not to not lead us into temptation whatsoever. Why? Because Christ is a model for us in all things. And he's also a model for us when he goes through the great three temptations. Jesus could have not been tempted. Uh, he, God could have decided not to allow Satan to tempt Jesus. But temptation's not just a, a um, how do I put this? When you're tempted, the options are not go back to normal or fall and go negative. When we resist temptation, we push back darkness. We defeat the devil. It's like if two armies meet. The army might ask God, don't let us be overcome by our enemies. But I don't think it would want to never meet its enemy. Because when you meet your enemy, yes, you have an opportunity for loss, but you also have an opportunity for victory. So when you pray this, ask God that you have opportunities for victory over the devil, for victory over your broken and twisted will, because temptation is an opportunity to defeat the devil, just as Christ did. But deliver us from evil. Now, although this last part tells us about where our intentions ought to be, and it sets up this idea that we are indeed in this battle against temptation, we should understand in humility, it's not us that ever defeats. It's only Christ through us that defeats evil. That's why it's proper to say, but deliver us from evil. For this is a prayer to God, and God alone destroys evil. Evil, in the privation theory, is non-being where being ought to be. And God alone is the one who can create out of nothing, who can truly, absolutely plug those holes in reality created by our, our finite and fallible wills, ours and the fallen angels. So, ultimately, the defeat of evil is only something that can be done by God. Now, 
we are meant to face evil, but it's only by divine power that we're upheld. It's only by divine grace that we can be victorious. And it ends with an amen. An amen isn't just a whoop, my prayer has ended. <laughs> it's also a statement. It's a way that we would, uh, we, we would pray in mass also. I believe it's Justin Martyr who says that in the early church, the great amen that we prayed, that we sang, and that we sing today could shake the whole building. What this is meant to be is an agreement. Amen means I agree. So the I agree is stated in mass. We're meant to agree with one another. And ultimately, praying to the Lord, we ought to agree with God. And that's a thread which is carried all the way through, from the joining of our wills with his, to heaven meeting earth, to the using that most fundamental bread in order to go forth in mercy to forgive those who have offended and sinned against us. And finally, to battle Satan, but understand that it's only by God's power. This is all an agreement with God. And that's what the Lord's Prayer is about. It's about lifting our hearts and minds up to God and allowing him to form us, shape us, empower us, and send us out in mission. The mission of Christ. All right, well, let's read it one more time um, so that we, we uh, well, you can just pray along if you really want to. You should be praying this after all. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. In the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. All right. Well, I hope you enjoy this bonus episode. Maybe we should do one on the... Um, on the Hail Mary, another very important prayer. There's a little bit of exegesis on that in the Mary episode from many, many moons ago. So if you're just too excited to wait, you can go back there and hear some thoughts on that. Well, thanks for listening. I would appreciate if you share this or really any episode in this podcast with your friends, family, uh, neighbors, whoever. Um, I do appreciate to hear that uh, it's going out and growing and uh, helping some people. So if it's helped you, yeah, help me and share it. And uh, um, yeah, well, great. Well, pray for me, pray for the podcast, and uh, pray the Our Father a few times this week. And I'll talk to you next episode. God bless.